Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we are back for the first Keep It of 2024. I'm Ira Madison III. And I don't even know if I'm back yet. My brain has to come back on. Do we know how to podcast anymore? <laughs> I'm Louis Bertel, and I'm worried for us. I forgot that we were technically off for three weeks, almost a month, because we did our final episode with Andy Cohen. Like We recorded that before we went on vacation. I was at a movie screening, and... One of the PR people there grabbed me and was like, where have you two been? I would love to know. I feel like I've been concussed. I got like all three of the viruses going around. So I just don't remember anything of my prior life. Hopefully some of me remains. There's gay viruses going around. The gays are getting them. Also, the straights are getting them. I had a um, girlfriend cancel a dinner because she lives out in Connecticut. And she's like... "Um, the moms and the kids there are getting whatever is going around. So it's sort of like contagion out there. Okay, okay. Of course, I'm thinking about the Gwyneth death face, which is <laughs> should be a mural over my bedroom or something. Okay, speaking of Gwyneth. Yeah. Oh, you thank God. We're back. Okay, let's over, go. <laughs> <laughs> what I finally did over the break. Uh, I've long forever only used the phrase sliding doors um, as, uh, even if you haven't seen the movie, you know that it's about... Um, when you're running and then um, you catch the train right. and then um, the the two different lives you could have lived. It's like, but like bucket find- list. Everybody, even if you haven't seen the movie, you know what that is. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Um, I finally saw this movie. Maybe it's bad. It is a bad movie. I saw it in college. It is, it is, it is a horrible movie. It's, it's bad mostly because, okay, Gwyneth Paltrow gets fired. Uh, first of all, she's using a British accent in this movie, and they give her the worst brown hair right. imaginable. That is, that is somebody who like, needs blonde hair. Uh, that's Bly, no that's Blythe's daughter. Movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and then the two lives that she leaves, she catches the train and finds out that her boyfriend's been cheating on her with Jean Triplehorn. Which just happens in life sometimes, right? <laughs> uh, she's always stealing bitches, man. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, she misses the train and doesn't find out, etc. I really did not give a fuck about either timeline. Yeah, right, right. There wasn't like, it, it wasn't um, instructive in either way. Like, I didn't come out of it being like, oh, this is so important for me to see this woman's life go two different ways and what we learn from both tangents or whatever. 
And then I learned this whole scandal about it basically being a ripoff of the um, Kosklowski film, Blind Chance. Which, as you know, all Americans have seen. So I can't believe they even attempted this. <laughs> uh, but I guess that film also inspired Run, Lola, Run, which is every millennial film student's favorite film. I was going to say, when I think of Run, Lola, Run, I think of I'm a freshman in high school or sophomore, and a senior is telling me about what movies are. And they're yes. like, Run, Lola, Run. See, like, it, isn't it exotic? And also, I have Lola hair because it's 2003 and we're crazy people together. High school, I was introduced specifically to Run, Lola, Run and Pi. Uh, pl- excuse me. Now I have to bring up my friend Elise Brannigan, who all, her DVD collection was what I call dark whimsy entirely. It was Pi. It was Donnie Darko. It was Donnie Darko. I knew that American was going to be in there. It was yeah, Dogma is not the same thing, but like movies like that. Virgin Suicides. Virgin Suicides is exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, and if you were a straight man, you had all of those movies plus Boondock Saints. Where, right. And as you know, that movie takes the wind out of my sails. I don't like to say those words. I think it's the worst thing to come out of Ireland. And <laughs> though I don't dislike most things that come out of Ireland, for instance, half the country was nominated for Golden Globes this year, and I liked all those actors. And honestly, maybe surprising for you, I feel like you sort of tolerate and even like Martin McDonough. Well, I love not him. in the case of fucking three billboards, bitch. There should have been a fourth billboard that said, get out, Lewis. We're ignoring that. That was that was him trying to be American. Okay. He should not make American products. We talked about this when it came out. We're not going to go back into that nightmare. But I compared it to when he wrote that play, A Big Handing in Spokane, yeah. which had um, Anthony Mackie in it and I forget who else. But it was him writing American characters and a black character. Uh, like this... Writing about race is not the same thing as writing about social class in Ireland, Oof, baby. Right. And Tough. we already have a white man director who loves the liberal use of the N-word. Yes. Also, is he, st- so, is he still with uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Yeah. Because I know she's like, why don't we cut some of these lines? Why don't you cut that line? <laughs> I asked someone recently if I should see Dial of Destiny. I heard it's okay. And they said... Yeah, they said it's okay, and they also said, yeah, it's really good if you love Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And then I stopped, and I said, who isn't loving her yeah, in these yeah. streets? Was there a Salon.com piece I missed? I'm sorry. It's, like, impossible. <laughs> She's too good. And also, she looks like she belongs in the movie Brief Encounter or something. She has, like, exotic old Hollywood looks. Yeah. Um, so, caught up on Sliding Doors, caught up on Kislowski. I don't need to rewatch Run, Lola, Run. No, the only thing, I, I saw Blackberry last night. You know why I saw it? Because mm. it was on Obama's list. Can I just say something? I'm not saying it wasn't entertaining. It is an entertaining movie. <laughs> I feel like we've seen this movie 30 times. It's guys yelling, you fuck at each other in a shitty office. I mean, it's just like, the the the, the actually they invoke um, David Mamet during the movie. But it's like that post, post, post David Mamet thing we're still doing. Did you see that? I did not. It's it sounds like an Adam McKay film, even though it's probably not. <laughs> no. I would say it's a it's better than an Adam McKay movie, and it is entertaining. Okay, I just don't think it's best of the year. Obama let me down a little bit there. I did think it was shady that he didn't like Barbie, which I don't have any opinions about that movie. So I did love how his list came out, and then he did a follow up tweet. Also, just saw the color purple and loved it. Has there ever been a more Oprah. fearful tweet? Has there ever been a more fearful tweet? I've, this has been the season of uh, everyone's afraid of Oprah, I guess. <laughs> well, she looks sensational, so, so it's sort of like heightened. 
the Oprah versus Taraji thread that's been happening lately. Taraji, is, I've been enjoying that press tour. I have been. Yeah, even when it's know, been harrowing, she's been, she's been very vulnerable. But she's been she's been letting it fly. Yeah, you know. Um, there's there's a lot to say about the color purple. Um, you would almost forget that um, Fantasia and Danielle Brooks are on a award season press tour because <laughs> we haven't been talking about no, it. No, right. We'll get into this when we talk about the gloves. Divine Joy Randolph. I'm not saying that role in the holdovers isn't good. She is certainly great. Has like a melancholic, grim depth that is awardable. But Danielle Brooks in the color purple is sensational. Runs that movie. I can't believe she's not winning a single thing right now. It is such a weird award season in that regard, only because for me, those are the two best. Yeah. You know, right right up there in that supporting category. Uh, I feel like everyone is rooting for Danielle and also Davine, but it can, there can only be one. Precisely. You know, and I feel like Danielle is at least happy that Davine is getting her moment. Because I mean, like, no shade to Davine. She, I think she's fucking fantastic. She's amazing in the holdovers. And I think a lot of this is also leftover sentiment from her role in Dolomite is my name. Right. Oh, of course. Which yeah. got a lot of attention. But she didn't quite but, you know, make the circuit. Didn't... Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think Danielle is sort of fine with it because that bitch went to Juilliard. Okay. Mm. She's she is gonna be nominated um up and down for the rest of her life. I will they're gonna induct her as like the new Viola or something. I will say in the supporting categories though. So Jacob Alordi was my and Priscilla was my supporting actor thing that got no traction. I now have a supporting actress thing that's getting no traction. Bitch, Claire Foy and All of Us Strangers, that is a 10 out of 10 performance. She fucking nailed it um, in that movie. She's amazing. She and Jamie Bell are actually my favorite parts of the film. Yeah, I think everybody's really good in it, but they bring a particular je ne sais quoi of like parents of a certain era and like I don't know. They just hit a button. Like, I, like I, I feel like they really nailed the the thing that like even mediocre pra- parents can provide for their kids. Like, I think that was really well mm-hmm. realized through those two actors in that movie. Well, I think what also helps is they know what they're playing in that movie. And um, Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal um, are just sort of hanging around. <laughs> Well, I think it's a tough assignment what they have to do in that. It movie. is. It's a tough. It's a tough assignment. I think they're great. What is their relationship? What is this apartment building they live in? Like, it's a little bit murkier than what the relationship is between uh, Andrew Scott and his late parents in the movies. Go see that movie and report back. Which is, yeah, which is not to say that they aren't great. I, I mean, I love those two actors, but I will say that they their role is a bit more nebulous. Uh, try and it's it's. I hate talking about this movie because you truly cannot talk about right, the movie with anyone who hasn't seen right, it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Very emotional film is all I'll say. Yeah. I will say my favorite part uh, was the Frankie Says Relax song. Very good. Oh, Very the good soundtrack in general was good because isn't the uh, Always On My Mind Pet Shop Boys in it too and stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and also very good club scene. Where Andrew Scott is supposed to be on Academy. Right, right, right. As we know. Shot very beautifully, which is two of my favorite scenes have been sort of like of the year have been scenes of like gay men like dancing in a bar. It was shot very well, just like Passages was shot very oh, well. Oh, Passages. I thought regard. you were talking about Error or something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We can get into this you in the said- Golden Globes, by the way. Let's, let's tell them what's going on this episode. 
All right, we are talking Golden Globes this year. Um, the ceremony, the alleged host, <laughs> everything. Also, by the way, and first we, of like 10 award shows we're getting in a row this year because we weirdly get the Emmys next week. And then I want to say maybe not Critics' Choice. There's something after that. And then we're right into the Grammys. Anyway, a lot going on in the awards world. Yeah, so th- this is what the Keep It listeners want. Right. We, 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 awards we season. We pulled that. Well, actually, we pulled just me, and this is what we want, so... <laughs> uh, so in addition to that, we also have two interviews this week. We're just throwing you right back into our interview game. One of them we'll start with is a Lewis solo interview. You chatted with your friend Kathy Griffin. Yes, who's, uh, if you've been watching TMZ recently, has been through it. This was before that we uh, interviewed her, but of course she's back on tour doing stand-up, which, thank God, we love um, and of course, she's fascinating and also knows everything. So she can go down every tangent. And believe me, we do. She's reality Von <laughs> See, I still don't really understand what that <laughs> reference is. I've seen it on Twitter. I know it has something to do with Housewives. But as you know, I muted all those words. Yeah, I'm, it's probably best for your sanity, Thank you. to be honest. Yes. I'm like a doll. Uh, I just don't get it. It'll rot my brain. <laughs> and seeing as our podcast comes out on Wednesdays, ah, I wore pink. You did. I did not. I wore yeah. I wore uh, my Kylie merch for a change. New year, new me. I'm trying this thing out. <laughs> uh, I'm wearing pink because we also have an interview with Anne Gowrie Rice, who plays the Lindsay Lohan role in Mean Girls, the musical, which is out this week. Before we did this interview, I said to Ira, it's going to be a good interview. And she was wonderful. I was right on the money with this one. Always bang on an Australian, to be honest. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social people. Um, as I say about the country, I don't think they even have a president. They just have vibes. Yeah. You know what? She's. I bring up one of my favorite underrated um, classics, The Nice Guys, yes. uh, during the interview. And I think we should interview Russell Crowe. I'm frightened, but um, yeah. <laughs> I'm scared too, but I think it would be... I think it would be fun. I want to know about throwing a phone at Azealia Banks. I, and also, remember when he did that gay movie with uh, Lucas Hedges? Oh, boy, boy race. I was about to say Ben is back because the world confused us that year by putting them really close to each other. Ben is back was <laughs> Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts. Boy Erased is Lucas Hedges and his parents are Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman, right? What happened to Lucas Hedges? I keep at, I, I'm sure, is there like an LGBT center he's hanging around at? I have no idea. <laughs> He's waiting for short shorts weather. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those boots, and they walked right into obscurity. <laughs> All right. We will be right back with more Keep It. Well, you'll never guess who was on Strict Scrutiny on their New Year episode. And no, it was not the apologetic ghost of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So close, though, it was the one and only Jonathan Van Ness, a doll of dolls, if you've ever met. He joined hosts Kate, Leah, and Melissa to share some New Year's resolutions for the justices of the Supreme Court. I would say they all need some yassification in their lives. You can listen to this episode out now only on the Strict Scrutiny feed. Our guest today is a one-in-a-million American icon. She is a legend of stand-up comedy who never holds back for anyone, even when she is asked nicely. Uh, she's a hilarious multi-hyphenate an actor, writer, hostess, all-around icon of stage and screen. She's won Emmys, uh, a Grammy, 
Uh, and now she's back with a new stand-up tour, My Life on the PTSD List. Please welcome to Keep It, the outrageous, the award-winning, and somehow my friend, Kathy Griffin. I love her. Oh, so excited. <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being some audience members. Everybody, audience members. <laughs> I wonder what she'll do next, they're all saying. Outrageous. I'm not going to hold back on you, Lewis, because I can tell your listeners what it's like when you come over to a lunch or dinner salon, because I have salons that I'm very proud of where no phones are allowed at the table. But what your viewers and fans might be surprised to know is you can be quite shy at a dinner party. Me? Yes, I like to pick my moments. Well, it's also like kind of a tough, I don't say tough crowd, but it's like, I'm just like some gay comic. Like, what do I have to entertain Rosanna Arquette with? You know what I mean? You have to do some math. Right. Now, were you at the Morgan Fairchild one? No, I wasn't. Lewis. I know. That was made for you. That's my language. So I have these salons. Exactly. I have these salons and there's a guest of honor. And I had one for Morgan Fairchild, who's just epic. But name some of the ones that you've been to and who the guest of honors were. Let's see. I've been there. Well, I've been, I'm usually there when Margaret Cho is there somehow. And she's always yes. like fun and chill. Uh, Jennifer yeah. Lewis has been there a couple of times. Uh, yes. uh, Kristen Johnston. Uh, yeah. Uh, Maria Shriver was there one time. And let me tell you, she is among the most no-nonsense people you could have at a dinner party. Okay, what about when Maria Shriver didn't want to take the picture at the end? I had to yell at her and browbeat her because she was in my home. We had an amazing conversation. She's whip smart. Oh, the guest of honor that night was Christopher Wiley, who's the guy that was the whistleblower about Facebook interfering with elections for Cambridge Analytica. Right, which was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing! He testified before Congress and everything, and then he and Marie Shriver got into it about Myanmar, and I remember he would always pronounce it Myanmar, and she would say Myanmar, and they just, they got into it over that alone. Right. No, by the way, you've thrown dinners for a long, long time, like since the 90s when you were just hanging out with comics and getting them all together. What, like, started this impulse for you to bring people together this way? Well, first of all, I I really started upping the salons with my now infamous cancellation slash Department of Justice investigation six and a half years ago. As you know, I've had some problems with the previous administration and um, we're working that out. So I think this tour means I'm officially uncanceled. Oh, good Lord. You're deeply uncanceled. I mean, there should be like some sort of government official coming down to say so. Oh, by the way, I do have an email from the Department of Justice saying that I was fully exonerated when they were considering charging me with conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States. So I do have like an actual document saying, okay, you're cleared. And I was off the no fly list and stuff. Okay, so during that time, A lot of my friends ditched me, so I started looking for new friends, and I thought the best way to do it is to have these, like, salons where people actually talk to each other and listen to each other, and my rule is no dum-dums. Sure. Actually, everybody I have met at your place is, like, specifically in authority in their area of expertise, whatever it is. Yes, and I stole the—well, I didn't exactly invent them, but I stole the idea, get this— I used to go to, she didn't call them salons, but they really were. And she would invite me at Gloria Vanderbilt's house. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm sure that has to be the house of all time, first of all, just to be physically in that space. 
first of all, you never knew who was going to show up. So she would like she would tell me ahead of time and I would have to look up a lot of the people because a lot of them were like academics and stuff. And she was just amazing and fabulous. and I miss her. But get this one time she thought this was a good idea. And I I get what her thought process was. And, you know, she's she Gloria Vanderbilt and she was older and stuff. But she called me one time and she's like, Kathy, you've got to come to the next dinner party. Woody Allen and Soon Yi are coming. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. As if you wouldn't have questions. Yeah. Oh, my God. So anyway, then she invited all these other cool women who kept dropping out because of Woody. So, like, Gloria um, Steinem was going to come. And then she dropped out and I called Steinem and I'm like, look, honey, I don't care how much of an icon activist you are. You're not leaving me alone at a table with fucking Woody Allen and Sunni Previn. You don't know what I'm going to say. And yes, I still call her Sunni Previn. And then Marlo and Phil were going to come, Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue. Well, then Marlo, being a feminist, she drops out. So I called her and I said, can you at least send Phil? What the hell am I going to talk to Woody Allen about? So they dropped out. So I sat next to Woody Allen, and he was like, first of all, he opened with a joke, which I have to say that part I sort of respected. So he's with Soon Yi, and he goes, this is my child bride. Wow, just right on the nose in front of everybody. First thing he said to me. So I was like, okay, he has some awareness. And then I just thought, look, I love Chloe Vandy. I called her Chloe Vandy. I get that she thought putting me with a comedy giant would be good. She doesn't, she didn't know my feelings about Woody and I I don't know hers, but I remember he was not one bit funny after that first line, which was very odd. I would try to ask him questions because he was next to me. And I said, like of all the comics you've directed in your movies, who did you like? Great question. Like, I don't know. And I go, okay, like Andrew Dice Clay was great in Blue Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you think of casting him? And then everything I asked him, he would go, oh, Juliet did that. His longtime casting woman, Juliet Taylor. So I think the secret to Woody Allen is even if you loved his great work, he basically said Juliet Taylor did everything and directed their acting and everything. And then Gloria Vanderbilt said, tried to do an icebreaker, and she said, Kathy, and keep in mind, this is like eight years ago. She goes, what is going on with Miley Cyrus? And I had you know, some <laughs> Miley update, and then Woody turns to me and says, I've never missed an episode of Hannah Montana. I remember you saying that before, and that really is just bone chilling. Like, what is in an episode of Hannah Montana for Woody Allen? Like, what's he getting from it? A sexy young girl. A sexy young girl. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like a detective. I don't know if that's exactly what he wants. Allegedly. Wanted, yes. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, no, but- I do love a salon where it is people that you would put together that normally would never be together. Because then, you know, you can have interesting conversations. But during my cancellation, you know, before and after COVID, because couldn't do it during COVID, it was just something that made me feel alive. Like, I really live for these salons. And it's kind of silly because it's just a gathering of people. But it's like something of days gone by and everybody's in their phone all the time. 
And I, oh, I always start with a text chain, as you know. And whenever there's a big celebrity, they're furious. Like, oh, great. <laughs> I don't even know these other 11 people. And now you're giving them my personal cell number. But what makes me feel great is after the salon, the text chain always lives on. And then people like That's so cute. Because mm-hmm. they bond. Okay, so get this. The next one I'm having is for Lunell, who played the prostitute in the first Borat movie. And she's right. a great comic. And I just thought, oh my gosh, for all of my bitching about like ageism and misogyny, God knows what Lunell has been through to get where she is. So we're going to celebrate Lunell next. Okay, fabulous. Now, by the way, speaking of Woody Allen, you're of course both stand-ups actually. And yeah. I was thinking, um, I just saw footage of you a couple months ago preparing for your current uh, tour where you were trying out material at the Laugh Factory, I believe. This, I don't know how many people at your level would actually do that still. Is any part of that like, do you consider that like the meat and potatoes of comedy? Like, do you always want to come back to that kind of kind of cabaret environment? Yeah, because that's how I started. And when I did those shows at the Laugh Factory, I I wasn't part of the lineup. So I called the owner, Jamie, and I said, what's your worst time slot? And he goes, Wednesday is at 10. Nobody wants to come. So I said, great. So then I just decided <laughs> I picked a month that had five Wednesdays and I decided to just do shows on the marquee, Kathy Griffin, one hour, and I would bring an egg timer and I would do the show in my pajamas because I had come off like a really big tour. So I was just kind of like being casual. I would set the egg timer, tell all new material, the bell would go off, the audience goes, ah, and I go, see you next week. And then I would continue the story the next week. So I would do a new hour every single week. And some people would come to everyone, which was really flattering. That is, I mean, it, it reminds me of like 50s television or something like, and we've run out of time for the day, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Because LA is so fickle. People don't have time. LA is like one of the hardest cities, if not the hardest city in America for me to sell tickets because everybody's jaded here. It's not a big deal to see like a celebrity or somebody from TV. So it's hard to get LA people to actually drive anywhere. But I've done shows downtown at the Amundsen. I've done shows in Santa Monica at the Broad. I've done the Kodak Theater many times, which is heaven. And I've done the Orpheum downtown. And half the time, it's just me telling my friends like, yes, there's parking. Yes, that means you have to be in your car. But I promise it's all going to be new material. And I drag them, but eventually they show up. What is the easiest city to woo you find with your stand-up? I have to say New York, because on my last tour, I sold out Carnegie Hall in 12 hours, which I still can't get over. And that is such an amazing menu. I've, got, I've been lucky enough to play it myself five times. And I call it the church, because people don't know that while it's obviously a music venue, it's amazing for stand-up, because guess what? The acoustics are just as good for a stand-up as, you know, for a singer. But the way the audience shows up, they show up and they're a theatrical audience. And that works for me because since I started, I've been an outlier because I don't tell typical jokes, like set up punchline jokes, set up punchline jokes. I tell these stories that have like three jokes rapid fire, then I'm kind of explaining something, then there's another joke. And so I have a story, very storytelling style 
which which puts me at odds with some comics. Like a lot of the guys have come after me. Like I think Jerry Seinfeld doesn't think I'm a real comic because I like tell stories, and he mm-hmm. does very perfect, well written jokes. And he he's almost like I think he's almost more of a monologist because he like writes his act on the computer, practices it, and does it and doesn't change. And mine is very imperfect, but I love changing up and talking about whatever happened in that city that day or that week. And so doing 40 cities on this tour is going to be a joy because I get to get little mine material out of every city that I'm going to. You know, hello, Omaha. <laughs> Creighton University is beautiful. I've seen it before. Something that I also think is that you used to be compared all the time to Joan Rivers, and it's easy to see oh. why. Like you're irreverent in the same way you guys were obviously friends. But yeah. I have to say, when I think of somebody who might be a successor to you in terms of what you just described, like storytelling yeah. and like running into jokes as opposed to just planning a monologue, yeah, yeah. not many people come to mind. Who is your successor, do you think? Who is my successor? The reason I can't answer that, and I admit this is bad, I am not up on comedy at all the way I should be. I I'm, I keep up on my contemporaries, so I kind of know what, like, Wanda Sykes and Chelsea Handler and Margaret Cho and Amy Schumer, like, the girls around my age, I kind of know what they're doing, and I know what some of the guys are doing, um, but I spend so much time trying to do my grind that I don't even watch stand-up very much because I'm so obsessed with watching stuff that I could mine for material, like a ton of documentaries, anything Netflix, docu-series, Twin Flames, any cult (laughs) I'm totally into. I'm watching that Squid Game Challenge, and Lewis, I feel so dirty. Oh, God. Also... That's like such well-produced reality TV, though. Like, you can't oh, look away. Like, truly, you have to keep watching the show. It is It is the, It is is the. one of the horses of the apocalypse. I'm not sure the number. <laughs> and yet, I'm, I'm part of the problem, not the solution. I'm watching it. Now, when I think about the kinds of gigs you've done since you've been famous, and we're talking about, like, the late 90s onward, like, you've done everything yeah. from acting to, you know, super corporate gigs to, and I'm wondering what is the kind of gig you're happiest to have left behind that you never have to do again? Um, I would say, um, here's what, here's what my days are over. My, I've finally gotten good at turning down the, uh, host, the hosting of certain charities where I know I'm going to bomb for free, of course. Mm. But the one that I just won't do anymore is for some reason, charity orgs love to call me and they love to have me do the auction. And that is a thankless job. The only person I know who can do the auction is Sharon Stone. And she does that big Amphire one and let her do it. But it's a nightmare. You're trying to get more money out of people. They turn on you. They resent you. And then you're trying to get more money and more money and you're selling a three-day trip to St. Lucia and you're hoping for the best (laughs) and then you're trying to guilt people. I mean, I've done it many times. And so that's, that's my new thing to turn down. Um, That feels like the A-list version of like a drag bingo night or something where you just have to keep (laughs) calling numbers and hoping something funny happens. Oh no, drag bingo. I will go back to because 069 is always a hit. 
<laughs> right, right. So there's built-in humor there. Um, oh, and you know, we so, just did a double on a gay cruise. Right. Now, you've been on how many gay cruises? And also, second question, how many yeah. gay cruises has your husband been on? I have done 18 gay cruises. And Randy, is this your 11th or 12th? 12. 12! He's 12th. And he is a cisgender, hetero, cis man, whatever. He's a straight guy. And, and if, you, if you will, mild-mannered. A mild-mannered straight man. I say this affectionately. He doesn't want trouble. He's not going to break into the guns and hoses party. He's not <laughs> walking around. By the way, can I tell you what the guns and hoses party is? Yeah, because explain that. These gays got a lot of nerve, honey. They got a lot of crust. They actually have the nerve to act like it's, by the way, these boats have like 3000 gays. And so the ship, and so the guns and hoses party is for firefighters and police officers who are on the cruise, who are gay guys. And it's to honor them wink. So really (laughs) is it disintegrates into just a sloppy fest of like guys who go dressed up as a cop, but they have like a cop hat and then just a G-string and they sure. all want to be arrested. And then there's a lot of puns about the fake firefighters' hoses. And so they do it every cruise I've been on. And I just love the title. Also, Guns and Hoses, I, you're somebody who I consider a scholar of celebrity. I think Axel Rose may be one of my least favorite celebrities ever. Do you have anybody who comes to mind in this regard where you're like, I just fucking hate everything that person stands for? That isn't in the Trump universe, I should say. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, probably Ellen. (laughs) Ellen and Axel Rose in the same basket for me. Yeah. Yeah, they would. By the way, that would be a very interesting interview of Ellen still at her show. I wonder how she would even deal with him. She probably wouldn't have him on. But, um... That would be interesting. But my issue with Ellen is that she has a big issue with me. And we've had like fights over the years, which are so epic that I keep texting her like every two years. I'll go, you know, at some point we should get to the point where we can laugh about our fights. Because when you think about it, it's like dynasty level. And it's really dumb that you and I don't get along. And then she doesn't write back. Which is interesting because I feel like time is particularly kind to your feuds. Like it feels like people you once yeah. upon a time had issues with, like like are now like they, like people you hang with now. It's interesting Paris that she's um, keeping it up. I just went to Paris Hilton's house and I've called her every name in the book, by the way, for decades. And I got to say, I, I'm so easy. If you just laugh and have a sense of humor about my material, I'm like your friend for life. And so she just gets it. And I went to her Christmas party. I'm not kidding. I got a I got a half hour of material just from attending. And what was great is it was like a time capsule. So it was like going back to 2002. So Paris looked the same. She still wears like pink baby doll sparkly outfits. And the sister also does. They don't dress alike, but almost. And I went with Rosie O'Donnell, which also is very like 2000s. And oh, yeah. Koosh balls flying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Koosh balls were flying. And, um, and there was a lot of sparkles. And it was a pink theme. And her house has all pink Christmas lights. 
And when I went through the guard gate, because it's a gated community, I first of all, just to hear myself say the words, yes, we're here for the Paris Hilton Christmas party, just makes me laugh to this day. And the guard gate, the guard goes, um, yeah, it's the one with the pink Christmas lights. It's one of the major houses. Oh, <laughs> she's got a major house. And so she, she just like doesn't give a shit what I say. And I just love that about her. And I'm not going to say anything mean, but I'm definitely going to talk about the party. One thing I'm going to do, I hope she doesn't take offense. I'm going to complain about the food because the only food they had at the entire party was corn dogs and one guy making crepes. Corn dogs. That's really like an Anna Nicole Smith sort of throwback. I'm really surprised. Wait a minute. Did you know the one time I went to a Christmas party at Anna Nicole Smith's house? Imagine if you hadn't. I know I didn't know that, but. <laughs> it was amazing. Margaret Cho went too, so she can back me up. China was there. And mm. Anna's cousin, who was his teeth optional, cousin Shelley, <laughs> got into a major screaming fight with Anna. And while it was dreamy, it got so bad that even I got scared and I left because Cousin Shelly and her fellow rednecks were actually scaring me and they were like starting to throw shit. Oh, like Texas Chainsaw style, like who are these backwoods people kind of thing. It was fantastic. And Anna had some, she was not um, sober at that moment. (laughs) And so she had this ice thing where you pour a drink and it slides down a slide and she just put her mouth down there and was just pouring like vodka into her mouth. It delivered. And freaking, um, she actually cooked. Wow. Because I was hanging out in the kitchen because sometimes the kitchen is where it all goes down. And as kooky as she was and she was out of it, she had this like Santa outfit on and everything. But she was actually periodically coming in the kitchen, checking the turkey, checking the stuffing. She actually made a lot of delicious food because she was from the South. So the food was really good. I mean, she would definitely have had a homemaking show in the 2010s had she lived to see the 2010s. Yes! When I think about you compiling stand-up material now, I mean, something you've always done brilliantly is use celebrities as a way to relate to people. But as I'm just now reading this Taylor Swift Time Person of the Year profile in which she is named as one of the last monoculture celebrities, is your job way harder than it used to be? Because no one has heard of anything anymore or no one agrees on anything. Right. Well, I'm also terrified of the Swifties. Because they give yeah. the magazines a run for their money. But <laughs> what I can do is I can sort of make fun of the Swifties because people know how, how shall I say, um, passionate they are. And I put them in the free Britney category. And I'm scared as hell of those people because they will find you and right. kill you. But Taylor Swift is a tough one to make fun of, which is weird because it's obviously punching up. She's so big now. And I want to be careful with her because while I want to make fun of her, because anyone that famous is is just kind of grist for the mill because her level of fame is so seismic. And yet I don't I don't gun for her hard because I also think she's a legitimate change agent, the way she's registering people to vote and the way she like went after Marsha Blackburn, the senator from Tennessee. So I might like make fun of her, but then I get in that info to let the audience know like, no, no, I'm following the good stuff that she does. But I also make fun of her because I saw that Eras tour 
I didn't make it through the whole thing. I'm not going to lie. Well, it was years long. I mean, it was like fully like a saga. It was every era, even of my life. It was everybody's (laughs) era. It started in like 2000 AD. And there was a lot of stomping. And I want to send her a little note and say, honey, when you do that walk, be careful. That's a lot of stomping. And I have two words for you, Liza Minnelli. You're going to need a new replacement. <laughs> and I think of these things. Wow. Yep. yep. I, I think you're correct. I think you're correct. Um, my last question for you is, um, you've already mentioned some of these celebrities from like the 2000s that, you know, like yeah. Anne Nicole Smith, d- dearly departed names. Do you have like one celebrity who's maybe still out there that you wish would have a comeback so that we could like talk about this person in like a, a comedy context again? Oh my gosh, that's a really good one. I mean, it's hard because, you know, so many of them are not fading away. Like, Brittany Brittany is so living on in her Instagram that she's really just as famous as she ever was and not putting out any music or doing any concerts at all. And yet, once again, I have to tread lightly because the Free Brittany people have actually written me and said, stop making fun of Britney dancing with knives because we wanted her to be free so she could dance with knives all she wants. (laughs) I don't think that was in the court order. I don't think it was. I don't think so. And yet, look, here's the deal. I want her to be free. I just want there to be like a knife removal person who lives in the house. (laughs) And I'll do it. I, am, I volunteer. I volunteer. And also, don't you want to know, like, who is in Brittany's house right now? Because the husband's gone. Right. Is there a chef? Is there an assistant? Does she have, like, a bestie come over? Because, you know, we've seen her with the purple wig going to the peninsula with a paparazzi. We've seen, you know, her, like... Dancing with her manager, this guy named, ironically, Cade Hudson, not Kate Hudson, Cade, which is maybe not his government name. I'm suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, a hiking athleisure brand or something. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. If you were to move into Britney's house today, what's the first thing you would sure. do? Oh, my God. I think I would just stay out of her way. I mean, it's just like I feel like she's very like should be able to pick who she speaks to at any given moment. You know, just like there's something about like people in public still coming up to her or whatever. Like even if she likes her fans, it's like we can't be doing that to her. I feel like you don't know what could set Britney off. Exactly. And then what about when she tried to touch some athlete in Vegas and then his person like smashed, like put her, knocked her sunglasses off. So somebody needs to be there to be her sunglass assistant and maybe that's her only job to make sure no athletes knock off her sunglasses. Kathy Griffin, thank you so much for being here. You are one of a kind. By the way, I was just rereading Official Book Club Selection, which is your first book. Maybe oh. my favorite memoir I've ever read. I mean, I'm in the oh middle of the Barbara God. memoir. So, yes. All right. And the name of the tour is the My Life on the PTSD List Tour. And I talk about PTSD and all the crazy things I do to get over it. But ironically, I just want to tell you. I don't mention Trump at all in this new show. And it's not because I'm like afraid of him or anything. He just kind of like doesn't come up. 
but I have a lot of stuff to talk about. Some of it's celebrity, not really like a lot of celebrity bashing, but fun gossip. And then just, of course, a lot of making fun of myself. Perfection. All right. Well, I'll be there personally, and I'm sure half the people listening will be there too. So thank you again, Kathy. All right. Thank you, Louis. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And (laughs) I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain Mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay, we are back. And quick update. Lucas Hedges, I guess, is on the West End doing Brokeback Mountain, right. the play. Yes, with Mike Faced, who, as we know, was in that update of West Side Story where the Jets and the Sharks had all done crossfit. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> I am very excited for this year of Mike Faced, by the what way. What is he giving us? He is, he's in Challengers. I don't know if I'm excited for that movie. The delays concern me. This is the year of the threesome, Lewis. Is that what we're getting in that movie? This is the year of the thruple. Okay. This is the year of the thruple. Someone asked Luca. I do forget it's a Luca movie. Yes. yes. He asked if there's going to be some queer shit in the movie. And his response was, um, well, it's me. So, of course. Mm, It seems a little dodgy to me. I'm not sure. (laughs) He's like Marvel saying there's going to be a gay moment. Right. Or Disney when we were promised a gay moment in Beauty and the Beast. Right. And it, and it was just Josh Gad asking someone to dance. It wasn't even that. It was like an armoire with an anklet or something. <laughs> um, well, anyway, we have that to look forward to. Um, already a big year for cinema and things we'll get to fight over. Ding, ding. But we're going to start it off with the Globes as we kick off award season on Sunday... The Golden Globes gave us something we haven't had before. A show we kind of liked, despite Joe Coy's best efforts. Well, I'll say this. Weirdly, it seems like a kind of good strategy to have like a monologue that doesn't do well. And then like everybody else sort of jumps in and is so game. And then it there's this redemptive mm-hmm. feeling through, oh, we're having a wonderful time and I kind of can't believe it. Yeah. I want to ask you specifically as someone who has written for award shows. And you're working on the Oscars again because Jimmy Kimmel is hosting Yes, I just submitted my second round of jokes. And let me tell you something. The assignment did not land in my inbox, so I had to find out about it later from uh, coworkers, and I still submitted on time. So I just want you to know I'm committed to the fucking bit. Anyway. Hi, Jimmy, girl. Love ya. You get a gold star this week in class. Um, What was your perception of Joe Coy's monologue and the whole, the especially the bit where he was like, I'm bombing. I only got this material days ago, et cetera. Well, okay. I have very layered thoughts about this. One, he didn't do anything to establish why he should be the one hosting or talking to the celebrities. Um, you mm. know who, um, there's this writer, Eliza Skinner, very funny joke writer um, and yes. comic who had an awesome thread about this. Um, And she uh, nailed it up, down, left, and right. Um, She says, like, you need to have a strong angle on why you're talking to the room. If she had said something, Mm -hmm. if he had just come in and said something like, I've not seen any of these movies, but I'm going to guess or whatever. Come in with some sort of way to tell us your game to do this job and you have a reason for being there. It would have worked out. But he seemed like the minute he was bombing, it was about, as we noted, blaming other people one he blamed the writers he's like you're if you're laughing at jokes you're laughing at the ones i wrote it's like well prove that bitch i'm not seeing one way or another how that <laughs> I could see be true. yeah 
But secondly, receipts, proof, timeline. I wanted to be sympathetic because then he said, I've only had 10 days. I got hired 10 days ago. And by the way, that is a very short time span. I know a lot of people out there tweeted mm-hmm. things like, if I had 10 days, I could still tweet. No, you couldn't. You would bomb. Please trust me on this. You would bomb. And you would not have seen all of the movies you needed to see either, which is, I think, a part of the problem also. But mm-hmm. that at the same time, I should not be hearing you got it 10 days ago. Make it seem like you've had it for a year. You know, like make it make it make me feel comfortable that we're watching this situation. I just I I didn't get his tack at all. And eventually it wasn't just the jokes that I think people were resisting. It was just even the way he was addressing the audience. It was combative, even in style. And I feel like that made it even more uncomfortable and unsuccessful ultimately. And then of course we had the bizarre situation where several comedians were pre- were presenting awards throughout the broadcast and they all seemed like very poised to do the job. Like it could have just been Jim Gaffigan, you know? Yeah. What's interesting about the combative nature of it is um you know when we interviewed Andy Cohen last year, we talked to him about interacting with sort of a-list big celebrities on Watch What Happens Live and how they're usually game to do something goofy or fun related to the housewives, right? And how he sort of like disarms them. I mentioned to him recently, actually, that I think that he would make sort of a good, at least Globes host, because I feel like what you need for the Globes, it's TV and film. What you sort of need is someone who is, they don't necessarily have to be an A-lister. They don't have to be a Tina or an Amy, you know, but at least be someone where people in the room either respect you, think you're really funny, or have some passing sort of familiarity with you in the sense that we've all sort of been through this industry together, right? right. And I think that someone like an Andy Cohen would work because so many of those people have sat next to him on his show. So they have sort of an established rapport, right? And I was thinking, Joe Coy, how do you even establish that? And I mean, most people, I was explaining to people at my viewing party that he was on Chelsea right. Lately for like, years, I, you know? That, yes, I was I was on the round table with Joe Coy. That's yeah. how I know who this person, yes, right, yeah. No, he's a, he's and, a very established stand-up. I don't mean to say he's not, yes. but yeah. But there is something to even that then, establishing maybe a joke about himself. Like some of you haven't seen me since I was talking shit about you on Chelsea. I promise I'm nice now on an extinct planet called the E network. Right. Any joke getting in there somehow, you know what I mean? But also the thing that actually upset me the most about it, because by the way, I'm not upset at like jokes bombing. It just, it could happen to anybody. I'm not like, that's not utterly rare or whatever. I can't do the thing where you're not familiar with the movies, really. Unless, again, you you have enough jokes about the not being familiar because you need to be ramping us up for like the hours of footage, entertainment we're about to get where we're like, you got to say something else about Killers of the Flower Moon. You've got to tell me something else about Maestro and it can't just be first thought headline humor that you sort of are familiar with. You know, like that kind of bothers me. Like the, the viewers of this stuff, do know the movies a little bit. And it felt like he didn't even know what the average viewer knew about those movies. Right. I I was going to say that the bit is usually for these things. Who knows what this movie's about, et cetera. But I would say that with 10 million viewers or so, uh, just the live airing of this, which is like over 50% of last year's viewing of the Globes, One thing that has always been the standard for award season is that 
the people tuning in, even the people who have a loose interest in film, like, you know, they're not cinephiles, they're not, like, quoting films, talking about old films, they don't have Criterion accounts, for example. It's a shame, but yes. Even that, <laughs> even that, growing up in the Midwest, like, watching viewing parties in high school and college and shit, People go out and see the nominated films, for the most part, before the awards show. So even that sort of, I don't know what this movie is about, most people are like, oh, if there's a Martin Scorsese film nominated for an Oscar, I'm going to watch it. Right, definitely. So Mm -hmm. that bit is already done. Yeah. The average movie, you could find a person outside the theater, like for one of your... um, Kimmel on the street bits, like the average person just going shopping on Hollywood Boulevard. And they'd probably be like, no, I've seen the holdovers. Though if I asked them, could you name an Irish person who was at the Golden Globes? They'd be like, Conor McGregor? That's the only Irish person anybody has heard of anymore. Did you know that? (laughs) He's very hot. Okay, moving right along. Oh my God. (laughs) Talented man. He can hit me. Okay, well, I... (laughs) <laughs> now you've said it. <laughs> call me call me Helena because I want to be boxing with him. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, good reference. I <laughs> I applaud boxing Helena. Um, okay. Anyway, though, we, as we said, the rest of the ceremony w- was enjoyable to watch. I think also a big part of the ceremony was short, good speeches. It's it sure seems like mm. they put like a thirty three second timer up on the uh, wall for them to look at as they're doing it. Maybe that's why. But you had a lot of people give speeches that had— 70% of the people on stage mentioned that they were running out of time. Right, they were frightened, yes, as which is good. <laughs> I think that's good energy. Um, one of the best of the night, I thought, was uh, Ayo Adebri, who yes. won for the bear. By the way, for some reason, it's extremely easy to predict TV awards at the Globes. I don't know really what that is. Maybe it's just boiled down to a couple of TV shows captured the zeitgeist this year, so you sort of knew it would be Succession well, and the bear. But— the Hollywood Florida Press, traditionally, which they're not even running this shit anymore. That is another thing right? about the Golden Globes. So, it's like, I want a Golden Globe. What does it mean? And who yeah. made this happen? Uh, a secret council. Right. They got new people. <laughs> and by the way, you still don't know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing traditionally we have the Globes is why Issa Rae, I believe, I don't know if she won or was nominated. Oh, but, you're, but it's like Rachel and, Bloom and, and Quinta, people like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Quinta winning and even uh, Gina Rodriguez back on Jane the Virgin. The For TV, they're always very pro-rewarding new talent. Because yeah. for the Globes, it always felt like we're the first people minting their success in the industry. Right. And so now they'll be, I don't know, indebted to us and invite us to parties at the chateau. <laughs> right. When you th- w- w- that's just it. Like I used to think of the Globes and I, I thought of the voice behind the Globes as... Uh, a, a Dutch man screaming at Jen and Ben on the red carpet. That's what I think of when I think of the Golden Globes. And now I don't know who that voice is, but they still do seem interested in minting new TV talent, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. I still um, have no interest in watching The Bear. I watched the first season. Uh, it is men being men around other men, even though they added some celebrity cameos in the second season, apparently. But that's just my least favorite genre. I can't do too much of that. Yeah, I watched the first episode and I said, this is fine for me. I'm glad it exists. Mm-hmm. I love AL. I love Jeremy Allen White. Good actor. Um, I really love them in both of their big films this past year. I love Bottoms and I love The Iron Claw. And I feel like I'm glad that they've crossed over into films so I can watch them there. Uh, that's, that's what I would 
prefer. And then the cameos being added in season two, I was just sort of like, I don't know what the show is. Yeah, it's confusing. So I'm not going to check it out. I will say it's nice that everybody is lusting over him in this Calvin Klein campaign because he still does look so much like hot Gene Wilder that it feels like we're all mm-hmm. in an immersive Gilda Radner virtual reality where we're all in love with Gene uh, Wilder. Were people like clamoring to unwrap his Wonka bar <laughs> back in the 70s? <laughs> I, you know what? I don't think so. I don't think anybody was like, <laughs> oh, I hope he puts a silver streak in me, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, and I just want to get back to your point about Andy Cohen. He also, I think, necessarily, if he hosted the Golden Globes, would have a co-host like Anderson Cooper. And I think a dynamic like that is perfect for the Golden Globes because it's like chummy people mm. who've had a couple of drinks telling each other the jokes and mocking the room along with the room. And I think that would have helped Joe Coy, too, having a co-host. Also, I would kill to see Anderson Cooper hosting the Globes. He would be nervous as fuck. Yeah. You know, like not comfortable at all. He's in like a stoic talk straight to camera thing for his what he does in his life. And to do this where you have to sort of actually look people in the eye and, you know, d- dig into them. I would like to see it. Honestly, it would probably give us another Anne Hathaway, James Franco. Fine. Whatever. I mean, yeah. was that as bad as Chaos. it was? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's better than Joe Coy. Potentially. Yes. I loved Justine Triette. Oh, the director of Anatomy of a Fall. Excuse me. She looked exquisite, by the way. And I just loved her French ass marching up there, chatting, chatting about her her film, the cinema. Uh, She she just looked cool. Also, I like that Anatomy of a Fall has gotten the traction it's gotten. There is something like if you haven't seen it, it's a movie that almost could be described as a a law and order like procedural, but it's way more interesting than that. It gets into what mm-hmm. like somebody under a microscope is exposed to, like how anybody can seem crazy when you throw the the right arguments out. And Sandra Hewler, who is the star of it, is a fabulous actress. But Justine Triette, who wrote it, um, so she won an award and she went up there and just the swagger, the way she walked. I was basically singing that song Ring of Keys from Fun Home at her while she walked up to the stage. Uh, I was obsessed with Anatomy of a Fall. I watched it over our break and I would say that now I need to watch every other Justine Triette film. Um, she, I really love her as a director. I love the film. I obviously love the Law & Order aspect of it. Anatomy of a Fall, I feel like, is one of the top movies that I hadn't seen by the end of the year that everyone I knew said, oh, Ira, this is definitely a you movie. Yes. So um, I had a great time watching it. The There's a steel drum version of PIMP by... 50 cent that plays throughout the movie and it is the i think the strange i think it's the strangest <laughs> choice in a movie of the past five years but like that it gets in your head you will have this song in your head by the end of it um it was very disorienting at the beginning of the film i thought i, I was like, is are people playing 50 cent outside my window <laughs> what is happening uh i've been on such a 50 cent kick again lately Weirdly. because ao technology one of the top songs of the century. Hold on. I'm going to think about that for a minute. AO Technology. Because that was like a flop single, right? Yeah. Okay, it was good. I, I think for a club yeah. song from that time, it did bring something. I think it was just the word I, words AO Technology that alienated me as a listener. AO, I'm tired of using technology. Why don't you sit down on top of me? <laughs> and then we got the song Ayo by Lady Gaga off the Joanne album, which used to be the first song that played every time I got in my car because it was alphabetically first among my song list. Yes. Because A hyphen yo. 
She's going to hell. She's going to hell for that. <laughs> I remember that specifically over um, New Year's Eve because I was in an Uber with a friend and it had the old plug-in instead of connecting the Bluetooth like you usually do. And they plugged in their phone and AO technology started playing because they didn't have AO by Gaga saved on their phone. And I immediately flashed back to, yes, that nightmare of it. Just you turning on your car and you hear Gaga screaming, here we go. <laughs> right. And, and then longing for her fucking aunt. Moving on. Um, <laughs> Okay, yeah, what else happened in the ceremony that we liked? Um, uh, succession uh, steamrolled everything, which was no surprise. Thought we got a bunch of cute speeches from that team. That said... Kieran Culkin. Uh, can you say about Kieran Culkin? Be- Maybe too much like the character. Maybe too much like the character. <laughs> He's been through a lot. True, okay? yes. The Culkins, in the future, we're going to have... There'll probably be an Iron Claw-esque Culkin <laughs> biopic. Do you think Rory's the one that gets cut out? Or is that Bonnie Bedelia? Anyway. <laughs> uh, they, they've got to include Scream 4 in that oh, right, biopic right of course right? yeah 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 yeah. that's the key plot twist yeah who plays Michael in that movie wait Michael who Michael Jackson oh in G- the Macaulay Culkin parts. oh Jesus Christ who was wasn't it supposed to be Joseph Fiennes in that one TV movie with like Helena Bonham Carter <laughs> as Elizabeth Taylor baby let's go I want to see it <laughs> I would say one of the other surprising things, and this is always fun once you start award season and you start to see what people considered were front runners or people were hoping would win and what is actually going to be sweeping. Shocked nothing for Barbie. Other than that fake-ass MTV award they threw at it where it was like, best good job, or whatever that was. Best, we all went to the movies. Billie Eilish won for What Was I Made For, which I feel like that was pretty much the lock going into the award season for Barbie. But yeah, this whole participation award that they gave the whole cast... Very silly. But and also an excuse to get fucking Taylor Swift there. Right. Because she was nominated for the Eras Tour movie, which was a box office achievement or whatever it was. Actually, she looked pretty good. I liked the green dress she wore. And honestly, I liked her. People tried to come for her after uh, not liking Joe Coy's joke about her. And I would say that I was on her side because the reaction was bitchy and funny. And I love a bitchy Sagittarius yes. woman. Uh-huh. But two... It's exactly what you said about the headline jokes about movies. If you're going to make a joke about Taylor Swift, who you know is in attendance, how about you have a joke that thousands of men haven't tweeted online since she started dating Travis Kelsey and going to the games? The joke was far from original. It wasn't funny. And by the way, that is the order when you're writing these jokes or picking these jokes, by the way. It's... Have we not heard this a thousand times? Like we are in a universe where we're like bombarded with jokes. You need to be telling jokes that I haven't heard before. It's part it's part of the gig as far as I'm concerned. You've got Taylor Swift in the audience. I just I just feel like that is such a that is such a draw. You know they're going to keep cutting to Taylor Swift. You know they're going to keep cutting to Timothy Chalamet and Kylie Jenner. So I would feel like that is something that a joke writer would love you'd kill for something like that that's when you get an amazing um people kept sharing tina and amy's george clooney and amal right um, of course clooney joke or like that james cameron one that killed you know like i feel like if someone had made a really good 
Timmy and um, Kylie joke or a Taylor Swift joke, like we would be talking about that. And she would laugh, I feel like, at a good joke. Yes, definitely, definitely. Also, I mean, nobody likes being watched in the audience of an awards show more. Please, she would have made a meal out of it. Um, <laughs> but uh, speaking of people who looked amazing at the Golden Globes, first of all, the, for me, the jaw dropper of the night was Andra Day. Good to see her again. Good to see her again. Ugh. She looked fucking amazing. That little comedy she, bit she did on stage, that was hilarious. She was really, yeah. really funny. Who was she with? I forget. She was presenting with John Batiste. Oh, of course, who John is Batiste. Yes, who can't stop winning awards. It's one of the, it's like John Legend syndrome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're terrified if you're nominated for a Grammy against John Batiste. Right, he's up for album of the year again. It's crazy. Weren't you just like the band leader on like Stephen Colbert like 10 minutes ago or something? It makes, it's crazy. <laughs> um, Andrew Day looked amazing. You know who else looked amazing? And this is not her thing in an award show. Meryl Streep. Meryl in that fucking yes. Valentino. She had the, that was the best she's ever she had the looked. Girls yes, that look was sensational, and you know it's because she's single and ready to mingle. And guys, it looked like it looked to me like she was mingling with Marty Short. It looked to me like they were mingling. You heard it here first, girls. Louis Moi, Louis Moi. Yeah. <laughs> girls, the math adds up. Martin is of course a widower. Meryl is broken up with Don Gummer, who I believe is still sculpting. What is happening now? <laughs> I want to know. I would love that romance. It would excuse me as I as I tweeted journalistically. I said it would be it's like it's like Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner times Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. It's crazy. Also, uh, maybe a controversial look because she did look like uh, she was in the Spring Awakening original Broadway cast, but Billie Eilish <laughs> in Willie Shafaria. It, it was giving to me uh, Roald Dahl headmistress. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought she looked great. Uh, Willie Shafaria is a great um, fashion designer. Also did um, Dave Vine, Joy Randolph's W Magazine look. Fantastic. I love those, by the way. I love when, just side note, I love when Jurgen Teller does a photo shoot of celebrities and then the internet gets up in arms yeah. about it. And I'm like, bitch, do you want to see Annie Leibovitz washing people out? Oh, I, I need to not go back to that time where we're putting people in Disney gowns. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but I will say about Billie Eilish, I'm a little mm -hmm. disturbed at how young she will be. And she will also be a two-time Oscar winner. It's just too young. Mm. I mean, like, we used to reserve that kind of thing for someone like Jodie Foster, where it's like, okay, you've been acting since you were an infant. But Billie Eilish has been, like, famous for one and a half minutes. And we've just thrown everything at her. She has nothing to aspire to. Also, just a dope celebrity in general. I mean, I fucking I love her. She's I a cool I wrote an elevator with her, and she's very cool. Her and her brother. They're very sweet. Um, honestly, she's probably earned the award after... Um, Whatever's going on with that Pink Friday 2 sample. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Where we were, were lied to and bamboozled <laughs> by Nicki Minaj saying, I've got Billy on track one. I was like, okay, well, Billy wasn't in the studio, man. Right. It's like when Dua Lipa released that remix album and it had all these amazing names on it, like Nena Cherry. It's like, oh, well, you just put Buffalo Stance in the song. That annoys the fuck out of me. Anyway, I am. I, a liar. I, I, will, I will say about um, Nicki Minaj quickly before we get back into the Golden Globes. FTCU seems to be catching on more and more. I'm enjoying that. Yeah. Faggot. Yeah. <laughs> As it sounds like it's being said in that song, yeah. but it's really just the word flocka being say, said over and over again, but it's never fails to crack me up every time I hear it. Um, going back to Dua Lipa, though, I keep thinking about you saying this on a previous episode about how you wish 
fun songs would win at the Oscars. Sure. Again. Yeah. And I feel like, yes, of course, uh, Billy will probably won again for uh, What Was I Made For? But Dance the Night was such a fun song and a big song last year. Like, you, you couldn't escape it. And it would be nice if that song were the winner. Also, you know, it's not going to be. It's a song but... with surprising legs. Like, when I heard it at the time, it felt like, oh, it belongs on Future Nostalgia. You know, maybe the mm. fifth single or something. But as it's come along, it's like, no, now I really associate it with Barbie. And I like hearing it um i mean it, 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 it's it's better than i gave it credit for initially by the way you know what i'm excited for i hope paul giamatti wins this fucking oscar um i loved him winning for the holdovers thought he was amazing in it he's beating bradley cooper which i think the internet's being a little too mean to bradley cooper at the moment we we, we no, don't no. love the movie i think he does give a bravura performance it just doesn't need to win let me tell you something about Bradley Cooper, okay? okay? <laughs> there could be a hundred people in the room, yeah. and if one of them is Bradley Cooper, then I'm blowing the building okay. up. Okay, <laughs> that's that's an unusual take. You're <laughs> driven to violence, okay? Yeah. Where's Ghostface? Yeah. Okay, that is what I have to say about Bradley Cooper. Uh, where's Arena Derevko to take care of what she should have done on Alias? Because I. Picked Bradley Cooper as my pick. Oh, and our Golden for, Globes picks. Yeah. And our, and our Golden Globes picks. You can watch that on YouTube if you want to walk down memory lane <laughs> um, and just see how wrong we were on the Keep It YouTube channel. But we, we hadn't seen Maestro yet. R- oh, but right. he seemed like a front runner. People were talking about Bradley Cooper. I was like, okay, let's give it to him. You know? I saw Maestro. What the fuck? I, I I was going to make this my keep it this week, but we can we can get into it quickly here. Where again, he put in clearly he got the baton choreography down. He had seen the tapes of Leonard Bernstein, much like Tar, and he did what he could do with them. There's no story in this movie. It literally is. He meets this woman. They have this annoying repartee. And then they get married. She's aware he's gay. She sees him a couple times, kind of start making out with the guy. She's like, stop that. Then she gets cancer, and then the movie's over. Why did we do this? You're going to die a lonely old (laughs) queen, Leonard. (laughs) Carrie was doing her best, but the entire endeavor, it's too fucking long. And the whole thing is truly about the style of the film. Like it looks glamorous and I love all the dizzying camera angles and Bradley was having a lot of fun with people running out of frame and appearing in a theater. Yeah. Got sick of that around the fourth time it happened. (laughs) But man, it really was just, you take, you change the names in it and it is generic woman married to a gay man movie. No, right. It, 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 the movie is all, if you like the movie, you like it for the window dressing. You don't like it for anything. It's actually saying or, any purpose it has. It's just, it made you feel like there was no biopic in the story of Leonard Bernstein. I did not learn anything about what inspired him to make Definitely music, don't know about anything about how, him after this. Like, nothing about him right. feels like it's been taught to us. And I feel like there, there, there was really no diving into the music that he created. You would sort of hear things playing, but I, I wanted to see him work. I wanted to see him working with other people within his field during that time. I just feel like it really just was a movie about their marriage and it didn't seem like it was giving a story about being a 
maestro, as it were. Even a point where I learned that his wife was well-known in the papers for um, her fashion and how she championed designers and had parties with famous people all the time. And there's like a little moment where she mentions, oh, I don't want to read what they wrote about me or something. But I'm like, that was a big part of her and also how she was maintaining her own identity while he was off, you know, doing lines and fucking people um, at the Philharmonic. (laughs) So, I mean... What are we doing? No, here? and also they did. I mean, you're right. They didn't get into why he's a genius at all. It just starts with, oh, he's a genius, and doesn't like, like I'm not saying this was like a proper biopic because I think the woman who created Mary Poppins would have hated it. But Mary Poppins Returns, when you get into the songwriting <laughs> in that movie, that's actually interesting. Like, oh, I'm seeing how this person would have worked, and you know what they objected to, uh, whatever. Like the process is is more interesting than, oh, he's gay and. Uh, wants to be fabulous, and he occasionally has arguments with his wife. Anyway, we have to wrap. Speaking of, yeah, but speaking of Mary Poppins, we cannot end without mentioning the iconic Glynis Johns. Oh, who died, died at 100. Recently. She was the oldest living Oscar nominee. The song Send in the Clowns was written for Glynis Johns. Um, a legendary And You performer. Must Meet My Wife from uh, A Little Night Music is just one of the funniest song Sondheim has ever written. Very, very, and a very, very funny performance from Glennis Johns, too. Yes. Oh, that was... And she's great in Mary Poppins. Like, that movie is just... Watch the original Mary Poppins again, and it, just how funny that movie is, is it still holds up. Definitely, definitely. And I, I believe now the oldest living nominee is the great Eva Marie Saint, who will turn 100 this July. So I'm just going to cross my fingers every week on Keep It, and she's going to fucking make it to July. So let's just keep that going. All right. Um, what else happened at this show? We should wrap up. Um, oh, Oppenheimer? Killian Murphy. Right. Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer seems like it's having its moment. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon really seems like it's just having its moment oh, with I will also say Lily something Gladstone. about that. Lily Gladstone, by the way, it's expected that she's won a couple awards here and there. The way she is doing press for this, I mean, she's playing like four-dimensional chess, doing a ton of the things at once. Utterly grateful. Mm-hmm. Talking about like other projects she's done and how they deserve um, recognition, the Osage Nation angle of it all, the uh, her uh, uh, the beginnings, her heritage. I just think she has a lot to juggle, and she's handling it so well. And I hope she's still having like a good time because it feels like a lot to do every time she's up at the mic. Yeah, I will just say also shout out to Lily Gladstone and Rami Yusuf for being the only two people at the Globes who really talked about anything of note. Um, Lily uh, used the Blackfeet language in her speech um, and really said something like, impactful about how Native Americans used to be dubbed very racistly in Hollywood. And um, Rami Yusuf, uh, while being asked on the red carpet about um, Jeremy Allen White's uh, Calvin Klein ad, he was like, made a joke about like, Jeremy, put it away. You know, I think the one thing on everybody's mind is um, Free Palestine and Jeremy Allen White, put it away. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Funny. A, comedi- a comedian is able to say that and make it funny. Um, I, I want a year where Rami Yusuf is maybe hosting an award he would show. Be good. He is very funny. Irreverent. And also, yes. Taylor approved because she's friends with Emma Stone. Uh, uh, and she went to see a Rami um, stand-up set in New York recently with Emma. Oh, how interesting. Because they're in Poor Things together. Rami is great in Poor Things. Love that performance. He is so hot in that movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Too bad about Gerard. 
Uh, moving on. <laughs> you said it. Okay, we will be right back with um, the delightful and Gowrie Rice, who is in Mean Girls, the movie, the musical, in theaters, formerly on Broadway. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Our guest today has been making waves for years and has already proven herself to be a strong voice of her generation, whether it's in The Nice Guys or Mayor of Easttown. And recently, she's taken up the mantle of the iconic Caddy Heron, Katie <laughs> Heron, you decide, in the movie adaptation of Mean Girls, the musical, where she shines alongside a killer cast. So we're very happy to have this incredible actor, podcast host, and author with us today. Please welcome to Keep It and Gowrie Rice. Hello. Thank you so much for that delightful introduction. Okay. Filling the shoes of Lindsay Lohan, I'm sure this is the first question you get all the time, but I'm just saying in that movie, one of the few performances I can think of where she's the relatable straight man character and yet also gets to be really funny. Like there's, there's a lot of dimensions secretly to the role. How intimidating was it to take on? Oh, super intimidating. I, I mean, I love Lindsay's performance in the 2004 movie so much. I remember just being fascinated by it because she goes on such a journey. And I think it was one of those teen movies that I watched growing up where like the main character does something wrong and like she makes you love her even when she's doing the wrong thing. And I think that's so that's so clever and and interesting. So yeah, big shoes to fill for sure. But it's, it's so like juicy for an actor when you get a character who has such a transformation. So I was really excited for that. She's really an active 
character as opposed and I think that's why Mean Girls has had sort of a staying power as opposed to most teen movies. So she's all that or something. It's someone is doing something to them. In this movie, you are the nice girl. You come in and you have you have goals. You want Aaron Samuels. You want to take down the plastics. Uh, so there's a lot for you to play here. Um, I want to ask about working with the plastics and then working with Janice and working with Damien. It's so funny coming into this film now because I feel like in 2004, Lindsay Lohan was the star, mm-hmm. you know, immediately. And so Katie becomes the star of the movie. In this world now, everyone is obsessed with the plastics, you know? Like yeah. the plastics were the villains of the original movie, but now fans love the plastics so much and don't even really see them as villains. So what was it like filming that aspect of the movie? It is so interesting you say that because I do think there are different connotations now. And I think we all felt that going into the movie that the plastics are iconic and they are the villains of of the original movie, but sort of the the cultural tone surrounding them and the cultural like um, attitude towards them is one of like admiration. So how do you play characters who are kind of mean Um no, not kind of. They are mean. And then <laughs> um, with that added context of like being really iconic. So I think we all felt that. And I think what is really interesting about Mean Girls is that um, no one is a is a clear hero or villain. And I think that was present in the 2004 movie. And I think that's why the plastics took off so much. Because as much as they are coded as the villains, they're also fun they're funny um they're sexy they're cool they also make mistakes and admit when they're wrong um and katie also isn't the the clear-cut hero that she might seem to be she's she turns into a villain as well so i think i think what we played with in this movie is yeah blurring those those lines of who's typically cast who's typically the hero and who's typically the villain something i love about this particular adaptation is that because it's this classic movie, they have some of the same lines as the original, you know, to sort of, I, I assume, you know, please fans of the original. But honestly, the punch-ups, the changed lines that I assume are largely from Tina Fey are so funny. And I don't know if people know this. It's so fucking w- funny. W- once upon a time, <laughs> Tina Fey would write something and then you would see it on TV like the next week. This is like a f- yeah. an outdated <laughs> world. We don't have this anymore. I miss it. But I was yeah. wondering, were you guys updating the lines at all as you said them? And was there a sense of, oh, there are certain lines we have to keep and other ones we can update? I think that all came from Tina and it was in the script when it first came to me. So every line that I read that I was like, oh, I remember that. And then there were also some lines that I actually watched the original Mean Girls a couple of days ago. Um, and I hadn't seen it since like making the movie. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize that line is also from the original movie. And then there was some where I was like, oh, I didn't realize that joke was adapted. I think it's very seamless in the way that she's done it. And it all comes from her. I think because she's a very clever writer. She knows, um, I think she knows what the fans want, but I think also I I feel like she will always choose the best joke. And so the the jokes that that are iconic are the best jokes. And so why would you... Why would you mess with them when they're so good? And then the other ones, the new ones that she's written are also like, we tried a bunch of different ones. She would give us maybe like three different jokes and and the best one made it into the movie. Mm. I want to ask a bit about your history with 
the musical? Had you seen the musical before you made the film? And also your background, I guess, with singing. And you're mm-hmm. stepping into the show with um, Broadway people like, you know, Jacquel and Renee Rapp. So uh, was that intimidating? Oh my gosh, yes, of course. <laughs> I unfortunately hadn't seen the Broadway musical. And then the first opportunity I had to see it, um, it was literally two days before I was going to fly to New Jersey to start working on Mean Girls. And I was like, mentally, I don't think I can handle that. I, I think I should go into it just like not, um, just not having that in my head. But I really hope that I will get to see it once all this is done. And then I can approach it with like, a clean slate. Um, going into it with the singing was very, very nerve wracking. As well as Jaquel and Renee, we've got Ali'i, who, like, hello, voice of a Disney princess, literally. Um, mm-hmm. Bibi, who has this incredible EP out. Um, so it, it's, it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by people who, who sing constantly and who are known for singing. And I think that was nerve-wracking to come into a space where um yeah feeling like the new kid again but there's something really challenging in that as well I love a challenge and I love to constantly be learning things and so that's the main thing I took away from it was just being in awe of these people and and soaking in as much information as I could and and learning lots from them is there any particular cast member you had a personal dynamic with that kind of translated to the screen, like your friendship with them helped aid what you uh, ended up performing. I think, um, I think Katie and Karen's relationship is really interesting and they get a few moments in, in our movie. And I think Karen of the plastics, she's the one who's like really earnest and like maybe doesn't realize that she's like in the main girl click. I think she's just like, oh, these are pretty people who like protect me from bad things happening. Um, So I think her relationship with Katie is really sweet. And Avantika, who plays Karen, we've known each other um, for like two years, three years now. We worked together on another movie. So that was sort of like the beginning of a friendship. And then I was really, I was really excited to like get another opportunity to like be friends with her again, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know, she calls me her mom. And I think we have this, like, she's, she's younger than my younger sister. So I feel like I have this like big sister energy with her. And I feel like that mm-hmm. comes across on screen. Like Katie's maybe trying to protect Karen from the worst of Regina George in some way. She's a star. She did fabulous. Oh my she was so fabulous. fucking good in this movie. Avantika is truly a major start like I didn't have to um I didn't have to work for most of the day when she filmed her number but I sat there and I watched every single take because it's incredible I'm trying to even describe what she does that's different from what Amanda Seyfried did which it's like I guess it's a daffier performance it's almost like the the, the look in her eyes is like it's she looks like she ate the bad berries or something like something zany yes. has taken over this woman <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love about Avantika is that she is ridiculously smart like super duper smart and I think and I'm sure this is the same with um, Amanda Seyfried as well and anyone who plays Karen you have to be an incredibly smart performer in terms of comedic timing, in terms of like empathy to make a character that simple, um, just so likable and so believable. And I think she does it so well. Speaking of um, 
an actor who sort of is able to do something like that. Um, this past year was a big year for Ryan Gosling, sort of as Ken in the <laughs> Barbie movie. And you worked with him in truly one of my favorite underrated comedies. And I'm sure you've seen that, like, people sort of love that movie online and are always yes. asking for a sequel. Um, what was it like working in The Nice Guys? And how have you loved sort of the reaction to it post um, the movie coming out since it wasn't that big of a splash initially. I mean, yeah, I was 13 when we filmed that. So that was 10 years ago. Um, I have very, yeah, (laughs) I have, I have very fond memories of that movie because it was my first big American movie. And like, I, I, it could have so easily gone wrong. Like it could have so easily been like, a horrifying experience and then I never acted ever again but it wasn't everyone made me feel so welcomed and so like made sure that I was okay and that everything was good for me um also took care of my family and that was really important to me like my mom was there a lot of the time and then my whole family was there like my dad and my sister we were all there on set so that meant a lot to me that they were also included um so yeah I have really really fun memories and to see yeah, the, the it's one of my favorite things to hear if people come up to me and say that they loved that movie um, for a few reasons. One is that I feel like I didn't know what I was doing on that on that set because I was so green, um, and also because it's I have only like really appreciated it like after the fact because when I was mm-hmm. you know thirteen and and read the script I was like oh this is cool but like I I I couldn't. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to be there for all of it. Like there were some, some parts of the, you know, they would send me home and then shoot the like more grown up parts. So I think, yeah, maybe it's not a movie for a 13 year old, but like now I, I um, really understand what it means and, <laughs> and all the different plot points of that movie. Um, and yeah, to see, to hear people who, who love it um, and what they love about it is really nice. Yeah. Is it at all weird to, like be a working adult actor now and compare your experiences from working as a kid like as you just said like they basically kept parts of the movie from you and now you're like a full part of the experience is that at all disorienting like oh either it's disillusioning or exciting i don't know um it's definitely different i think i'm very fortunate for i'm very grateful for my experience like as a kid on set that I was never exposed to anything that was like uncomfortable or never had to do anything that I didn't want to do. Um, my parents really protected me, but also so many of the producers and directors I worked with were also really, um, intent on protecting me from, you know, from if it's adult content in the film, or if it's like just something as simple as not letting me know that we're short on time and like putting pressure on me to deliver on the last take, like, even something as simple as that is like so good for a young person, I think. Um, so yeah, now there's a lot more responsibility. There's a lot more that you see, that you hear, that you have to like problem solve and be a part of. But um, just like growing up, it's like, you know, you don't sort of wish, like it was, it, You know, I don't think ignorance is always bliss. Like as a child, it was really good to be protected from that stuff. But now, I'm an adult, I can handle it. And I also really like to be a part of problem solving on set. I think it's, it's how, it's how movies get made. You're faced with a challenge and you work together to solve it. 
Also, speaking of problem solving quickly, I was just thinking about Mare of Easttown and like, which I think is maybe my favorite limited series of the past 10 years or something. And also at the time, just watching it from week to week, like everybody was wrapped. You couldn't stop discussing it. At the end of the day, it is like a procedural and, and sort of a typical drama in certain ways. But I was wondering, why do you think this was so good? What was what was it about Mayor of Easttown that people were like obsessed with? Why am I obsessed with it? Explain me to me. Oh, um, <laughs> I think I think it's Kate. I, I really do. I think. Well, I think it's also a combination of things. I think it's the writing. I think the writing is just so detailed and really comes straight from the heart. Like the writer grew up in that area. It's some of it is like based on things he experienced. So, um, I think that's. I think you can see that in the in the show. And I think it's Kate's dedication, not only to her role, but also to the production as a whole, as a producer on it. Also just leading a big ensemble cast. There were so many people in that cast I never got to meet who had like really like pivotal roles in the story and I just never saw them. Um, so I think her leadership also made it really great. I also think, you know, it came out during COVID. So we were all inside and I think, that also, you know, made it so exciting to like see something. I think we all had a dedication to television and watching movies because we were all inside. <laughs> um, I mean, well, speaking of Kate, then I can't let this interview go without asking about another iconic mother that you worked with, Nicole Kidman on <laughs> The Beguiled. Um, what was that ensemble cast like and working with Sofia Coppola and then also, I guess, working with, um, you're in an American film, I guess, but you're working with Nicole, um, an Australian actress who has made that jump um, years ago. Like, sort of, did you get any advice from her? Was it nice talking to her, being on set with her and hearing maybe past experiences about that? I loved working with Nicole on The Beguiled. She's someone I really admire and look up to. She's had such a incredibly like versatile career um, and that has just like kept going. Like she keeps choosing interesting projects. She keeps delivering great performances. Um, she's a powerhouse. Really what I remember from the filming is just how dedicated she was to the job. And so everything that we spoke about, like, was about the story we were telling, uh, which I really loved. Like, that was such a special shoot because we only had two locations. We only, we had a cast of nine people. That's so rare to have a feature film be, feel so contained, almost like a play. So everything in that world was, yeah, we were talking about the story and the characters and it, it was really, like, insolent in that way. Um, and then the film went to the Cannes Film Festival. And that's when I like remember just seeing her like do her work for the, for the press. And that to me was also really inspiring because that's a whole other part of the job that, um, that can be really difficult. And she handles everything with such grace and such poise. As an Australian actress um, and someone who, um, like you said, you know, you really admire Nicole. I'm interested in where maybe your first um, introduction to her was then like in film that you first remember mm. uh it would have been moulin rouge because okay um i grew up loving baz Luhrmann, so it was definitely moulin rouge um and i know she's not in this but like i also around the same time watched strictly ballroom so i was like clearly in like mm. a baz Luhrmann 
phase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then in high school, we studied Romeo and Juliet. So then I watched Romeo and Juliet. But yeah, um, Moulin Rouge to this day is like one of my favorite movies. It is just such a spectacle. It's like, it's so fun. And she sings in that too. She's, oh my God, she's incredible. Now, I just saw an interesting interview with Margot Robbie where she said it would be basically uncomfortable for her to act in her original accent now. I'm looking back at your career now. I mean, like, let's first of all, the accent work you do in Mayor of Easttown is not to be underestimated, by the way. <laughs> but like, do you feel that way at all? Like the the more you act, the more you're getting away from your natural voice when you perform? No, actually, the more I act in an American accent, the more I want to act in my own accent, which is it really interesting. It also depends on how I learn the lines. Like I need to know mm. what accent I'm doing before I learn lines. I couldn't I could not play Katie with an Australian accent because I learned all her lines as an American. Um, Mm -hmm. But like there was, I I did a movie called Senior Year where I played the younger Rebel Wilson and she was Australian in the movie and I got to be Australian in this movie surrounded by Americans. And there was something so special in that for me. It was like, I can like, I can breathe. Like I don't have to worry about it um so no i i I actually still really cherish any opportunity i get to to act in my own accent (laughs) is there like a secret australian group chat like a meetup like there's so many (laughs) yeah right honestly i feel like (laughs) i feel like lewis and i prefer most of the australian actors um to our american ones at this point (laughs) I don't know about a group chat. If there is one, I'm not on it. But it is true that, like, the degrees of separation, you know, there's, like, that degrees of separation within actors. Like, you can get to a certain actor in so many moves. I feel like... Through Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah. through Kevin Bacon. I feel like with Australian actors, the degrees of separation is a lot... Like, the number is a lot smaller. Like, you can you can jump to, through all Australian actors, even if it's not to do with the industry, even if it's to do with, like, where you grew up, where you spent your summers, Um what school you went to. Yeah, there are lots of connections, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. You're so lovely in the movie. Uh, the movie is extremely funny. Uh, and I came in being like, do we need another Mean Girls movie? I'm not sure. I laughed my ass off during the movie. So I'm really <laughs> excited by it. Thank yeah. you so much. That that means a lot because I also asked that question. Um, and then when I heard what Tina had to say and saw the director's vision, I knew that it was going to be something special. So I'm glad that came across. Yeah, she's pretty funny, I guess. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Yes. Yes. I mean, maybe there's a reason she's been so successful for so long, but, like, who am I to say? Right, yeah. Uh, Well, thank you for being here, and we will look forward to seeing you in a Baz Luhrmann film. Ding, ding. So, yeah. I mean, one day, maybe. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As always, it is Keep It. Lewis? Yeah. What's your Keep It this week? Mine is uh, related to the Golden Globes and also to somebody we already brought up. Iowa Debris in her speech said she wanted to thank not her agents and managers, but her agents and managers' assistants who took all of mm-hmm. her crazy emails and yes. uh, get things going when it comes to booking these things, sorting things out. How is she the first person to ever thank those people? Because truthfully, those are the people who have to put an extra elbow grease in order to one, keep their job, 
and two, keep mm-hmm. all of fucking Hollywood going. It is sort of always mysterious to me that agents and managers yeah. are thanked for doing their job. I don't get it. Okay. Like, I, it's just, what's the hard thing they have to do? Like, what what is the X factor about what you do that needs to be thanked? I just don't get it. I don't really get it. Whereas an assistant has to be like, knowing what that person needs without being asked and, you know, knowing who that client is and all the projects they did before. I just feel like there's so much they have to be doing all the time. I feel so bad for assistants. It's something like, there are lots of paths inward to Hollywood. Being an assistant is one of them. That is not one I could have done. I am somebody who sends the wrong version of a document every time I do a bit at Kimmel. I am a problem. <laughs> I would be fired from being an assistant. People who can do that, that, I mean, like, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of those people want to be screenwriters, whatever. Those are two entirely different skill sets. One one thing does mm-hmm. not make you good at another. And it's crazy that we kind of demand they, you know, <laughs> be like a spreadsheet master or whatever in order to then go mm-hmm. on to what they really want to do. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, listen, shout out to Alyssa McKinnon, my manager's assistant, because let me tell you something. I am the craziest when I am sending an email. Uh, right. I, I, it truly is like responding to the, I have being a writer, no concept of time, whatever, <laughs> responding to things, or it's like, I forgot what this address is, or what was I supposed to be doing this? And it's always like, you didn't read this other email. And they're never, they never say like, it was in the email. Right. They're never like two weeks ago. They're like, well, dumbass, uh, here are the correct answers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like a level of diplomacy with which they have to approach everything too. It's utterly taxing. So, uh, and they know everything. Right. About everybody. Right. No, uh, they know who can't spell words. <laughs> I always think that's interesting. You can never predict who can't spell. It's utterly randomly yeah. distributed who can't spell. They know who spell, and they also know who's a liar. Probably people <laughs> responding to things, being like, "Oh, I'm doing this or whatever." It's like you're clearly not right. <laughs> they're like, "Oh, I can't tell them I can't do this." It's like you're in you're in Bermuda. <laughs> but okay, I will tell them that. Yeah, the detective work they have to do. Um, yeah, shout out to that entire community. That was a, a very rad move on Io's part. It's actually the A in the LGBTQIA plus. Oh, is it? Assistant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Took me a while to walk there, but I did walk there, and I'm happy I'm there. My keep it goes to the New York Times for writing this very wild piece about Taylor Swift being oh, right. a queer icon written by someone named Anna Marks, who is an opinions editor, by the way. So not just some random off the street, but to explain this, you sort of have to explain the fact that there is a sect of Swifties who call themselves gaylors, uh, who are obsessed with finding any sort of evidence that Taylor Swift is a dyke. Right. So you said the word uh, gay and my soul left my body. I'm not here anymore. <laughs> Sorry. So it's a lot of fanfic about any time she hangs out with a woman, uh, <laughs> yeah. she must, you know, she, she, she's licking them like Ariana and that donut. Right. Okay. okay? Yeah. Like that, that is what goes through their minds. The fanfic is insane. Um, putting it in the New York Times, that is crazy. Okay, I mean, do you see people writing New York Times articles about all the crooked media slash fic that they used to write Precisely. when we first launched? Right. It's frightening. Um, you know, you don't want yeah. you don't want to learn about Tommy and what he's doing on his Casper mattress and those. You don't want to know. I don't want. I don't want to know what he's doing with Ron DeSantis on that. Um, no, 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 no. Tour right oh, now. Oh yeah, our Vivek, whatever his name is, absolutely not. Get away from me. 
Yeah. By the way, for the first time ever recently, somebody said to me, oh, they looked at my last name and saw I worked at Crooked. They're like, oh, are you Tommy's brother? I'm like, you can't read well. Moving on. <laughs> Christian illiterates. They're everywhere. <laughs> the New York Times, it's not just the silliness of it. There's just also this very dumb ass quote, too, from the article, the essay, where it says, whether she is conscious to it or not, Miss Swift signals to queer people in the language we use to communicate with one another that she has some affinity for queer identity. What the fuck? Bitch, what the fuck? What the, like she's where speaking, the hell does bitch live at? Is she speaking to Polari to us? What the fuck was that? <laughs> also, also, it's Did like, you see the look what you made me do video? Yeah. <laughs> that was speaking to no one. <laughs> also, like, basically what they're saying is certain fans of Taylor Swift see whatever the fuck they want to in what she does. It has nothing to do with Picking up actual signals. It's making up signals. And also, by the way, how about liking an actual lesbian artist? Would that be so fucking hard? How about you go and like support actual queer people instead of you're only interested in one person or a thing and you need to make that thing whatever you want it to be so it can be your entire world? That like Okay. Can a gay girl get an amen? (laughs) Quoth Renee Rapp. (laughs) Quoth Renee Rapp. I just think it's silly, and it's and the defense of it is sillier. But I will also say, I think Taylor's response was a bit, we didn't need all that. Uh, because, once again, why is Sean Mendes catching strays here? No, who, who brought his name up? It wasn't someone from her camp, was it? I don't That's believe, utterly I there was irresponsible a, if I they did it's, that. It's, it's, talking, it's talking about... Um, I believe there was a response talking about speculating about people's uh, sexuality is wrong, et cetera. Um, and somehow people started talking about Sean Mendes and he started catching strays. Um, I didn't read the whole thing, obviously. <laughs> you sounded uh, Because I have a life. Yeah. <laughs> I have a life. Well, he's- I was like, Taylor's, ang- Taylor's angry. She has a right to be moving on. Uh, I would like to leave most of the Taylor Swift media blitz in 2023. But it just reminded me of when he was, when he did that Rolling Stone interview and he talked about um, how people used to speculate about his sexuality, right? And remember he gave that story about how Taylor texted him once and said, I'm going to post this photo of you. And he had glitter on his eyes and he said yes. And then the next day he woke up in a cold sweat. Are people going to think I'm gay? I have that thought every day. Now, now he mostly is... um a non-celebrity who just surfs all the time. He seems to want to be filmed uh, shirtless in the snow. I've noticed that recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah on the snow, on the beach, anywhere. Right. Um, anywhere Great. but the studio. Right. <laughs> by the way, speaking, I believe the New York Times also was the one who ran that piece by a therapist or something about how Taylor Swift has been helping people in therapy, including this therapist. And she said something like, I used to listen to people like Tori Amos growing up, but they were always wallflowers. Taylor Swift is at the party and having a good time. What about confronting your rapist in a song sounds like a fucking wallflower to you? I have never fucking heard anything like that about Tori Amos, a bona fide genius and one-of-a-kind artist in my life. Utterly insulting. Well... You can use the code Lilith there at BetterHelp.com <laughs> if you want to learn more. That's our episode. I was Michelle shocked uh, to hear this. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you to Kathy Griffin and Ann Gallery Rice for joining us. We will see you next week. Hooray for all-
Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord, and our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroote, David Tolles, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.